0: This episode is sponsored by Canaccord Genuity Wealth Management. Experienced wealth managers who go above and beyond to guide and support you. CanDo is more than just an attitude. It's navigating today for a brighter tomorrow. Visit CanDoWealth.com
1: Hello and welcome to Women with Balls, where I, Katie Balls, speak to today's trailblazers. My guest today was born in Peterborough, an Indian father and English mother. She's been an MP since 2015, but before Parliament, spent over 25 years working to end domestic violence. She served under Jeremy Corbyn as Shadow Minister for Arts and Heritage, and now serves in Keir Starmer's Shadow Cabinet as Shadow Culture Secretary. She is no stranger to a lively debate at the Dispatch Box, and despite a busy life as an MP, still finds time for music, playing cello in Parliament as part of the String Quartet, the statutory instruments. My guest today is Thangam Devaner. Thangham, thank you very much for coming on the podcast today. We always ask our guests, would you describe yours as a happy childhood? With a control group of nothing. Yeah, I
0: would describe it as a happy one. I was born to a pair of musicians. And so music was always a part of my life. And at the age of four, I demanded a cello. And I, I do mean demanded. I was fairly insistent on the subject. There was no diverting me at all. And that was because I had a babysitter who played the cello. Anyway, long story short, I was still quite short myself, aged four. And so my dad had to saw the legs off a chair to make them short enough for me to play the cello and I had a small cello, a quarter size.
1: And I felt bad because at four, I think I was giving a talk on sweets. Um, So you seem to be using a better time um, with opportunities then. Yes, but
0: but I think my character was already quite pronounced because I was fairly impatient with the cello and the bow that you play it with when it wouldn't make the noise that I wanted it to. And I'm afraid to say I threw my bow out the window. But I went on, I went on to practice very hard. And yeah, I mean, music's been a part of my life ever since.
1: Definitely less musical than you, but I learnt violin for me young age I think there's a certain horror in parents eyes when you pick a string instrument and they don't know if you're going to be any good did you pick that up from your parents or were they quite confident because music was in the blood
0: well I you know I'm going to go and ask my mum now what she thought of me when I first played but I was Determined to play it well. So once the the early sort of shaky start was over, I, I, I really did work very hard at getting to be good. You just can't be good the first time, but you can put in the hours and learn. And over the years, that's what I did.
1: So, what instruments did your parents
0: play? They both played the piano and the organ. Uh, My dad got a scholarship to the Royal Academy of Music and came over on the boat through the Suez Canal from India. Aged 18, he had his 19th birthday in the Suez Canal to take up that scholarship, where he met my mum, who also had something pretty similar. And so they met at the Royal Academy of Music.
1: And would they have to go to church to play the organ?
0: Yes, and that didn't dawn on me for ages. Like, why does my dad have to go to church so often? And, And And it was because that's where you play the organ.
1: Now, you attended grammar school, I think a private grammar. What were you like at school? Were you, I don't know, girly swat? Were you very studious? Were you more focused on music than your other studies?
0: Well, I went to a lovely Tiny state primary school first, and then a slightly less tiny but nonetheless small one. And then I ended up at a grammar school, and then eventually at Cheatham School of Music for the sixth form. And to say I was a girly swap, well, yes, I was. (laughs) I enjoyed studying and I enjoyed playing music. So I did do a lot of playing in orchestras before I went to music school. And then once you go to music school for the sixth form, although music is all about the music, I did also study maths and further maths and that was a big part of my life.
1: Now I'll talk about university in a second but I just wanted so very musical household I'm imagining you playing music in the evening together but correct me.
0: (laughs) Like Um, like, like a Jane Austen novel or something. Is that right? Well there was a little bit of that there was also competition though for the room with the musical instruments in it because my dad was a professional pianist but yeah there, there was a bit of that but we didn't play quite the right combination of instruments for that to work like I don't know the Von Trapp family or something.
1: And was politics ever discussed?
0: It was a very political family in the sense that on my mum's side my mum was a from a very working class family from east oxford and my granddad was on the assembly line at cowley motorworks and my grandmother was a nurse and they brought her up to be very political she remembers sort of going around collecting the labour party subs on a friday afternoon and the days when just about everybody around there belonged to the labour party the transport and general workers union which was my granddad's union he was then a labour councillor they were part of the co-op party politics was a big part of our lives I I don't remember not having politics as the subject of the conversation in fact of an evening we're probably more likely to be arguing about politics than playing happy ensemble music
1: and then it's quite interesting because we talked about the musical upbringing you mentioned maths but you then applied to Oxford University to read mathematics Mm -hmm. were accepted
0: I was good at maths in the sixth form I was reasonably good at maths in the first year at Oxford and then as I've heard other people do I didn't realise this at the time I plateaued in my second year where I was lost and I was also enjoying playing music a lot and there was a a lot of opportunities and I, I, I discovered that I like playing the music for theatre which is something I did subsequently.
1: And did you pick maths over music when you were applying because you thought that would be better for getting a job or?
0: It's less work than writing essays. <laughs> Seriously in the sixth form I was the envy of my friends at school because I could get all my homework done really quickly because it's you know in maths if you understand it it doesn't take very long until you get to a certain level of course whereas my friends were writing essays and that gave me more time to play music and get involved in theatre and and get involved in politics a bit, though not much at Oxford.
1: No, I hear you. I did single honours philosophy and I was shocked when I discovered I had to do logic after I joined, which initially I dreaded, and then it was Equations and once you got the hang of it... It's quick. It's really quick. I was like, why am I doing these ethics essays and yes. getting like 62%? Just do the equations. Exactly. <laughs> you got it. So what was the level of political involvement when you were at Oxford?
0: Very low. Now I know my Labour Party, sort of my, my colleagues and so on, how quite a few colleagues were at Oxford at probably the same time as me. Which I didn't ones? come across them well. I didn't know them Katie that's the thing. So I I got there. I think I went to one Oxford University la- Labour students meeting and I was much more involved with like the local party because that's where I, that's the bit I knew. And to be honest that was one of my early lessons in sort of class divide because I felt Oxford was for me because it was where my grandparents lived but that was very much of the east end of Oxford and the factory and and the trade union movement and the Labour Party not the Labour Party of Oxford University students very different worlds and the two didn't really work for me so I was much more connected to the sort of general town than the gown labour movement.
1: So you moved from Oxford to study music what was it like eventually I suppose The phrase dropping out would be right, even though it sounds quite negative?
0: We can safely say I did not complete the, my maths degree. I did go on to do a master's degree at a later age because I did feel a smarting. And I also knew, it, you know, it disappointed me. But I had kept a brilliant, brilliant cello teacher who I'd found just before I got to Oxford uh, called Raphael Wolfish, who's an absolutely wonderful cello teacher. And he had taught me the cello anyway whilst I was at Oxford. I carried on learning from him and I subsequently got professional work as a cellist. Although I carried on doing some professional work, again, mainly in theatre, till my mid-30s, late 30s, something like that, off and on, I quite quickly got into domestic violence work and found that I was really interested in doing things that were more political, small p.
1: And when you chose to go into domestic violence and trying to prevent it and so forth, was there a specific thing that drew you there, or as you say, was it just more general, kind of a sense of wanting to help people in that way?
0: I'd connected... The inequalities that I'd seen between men and women, this was the 1970s, 1980s, when, you know, at the beginning of the 1970s, it was still completely legal to pay women less than men. It was still legal to say to a woman who wanted to get a mortgage, where's your husband? Uh, My mother tells a tale of trying to get a high purchase agreement on a washing machine and being told to go and get her husband's signature. Now, that seems like inconceivable now. Now, the connection with domestic violence is that I'd made various connections from things I'd seen that being in a position of inequality between men and women created the conditions for domestic violence to thrive but they also domestic violence made it harder for women to achieve equality so there was a there was a relationship between the two and as a feminist and as someone who was striving for equality i found a group of women who i knew who said if you're interested in campaigning for equality, if you're interested in frontline feminism, come and volunteer at the local Asian Women's Refuge, which I did, and from there I went on to get experience and subsequently went to work at Women's Aid National Office as the National Children's Officer. What brought me to Bristol?
1: And I mentioned in the introduction that's over twenty five years. It's a huge amount of time. I suppose business <laughs> Your skin is very good. Yes, I know. Thank you. I so have I a good to skincare. I check when we routine. recorded. I was like, is it really 25 years? <laughs> and then I found it was more. Um, but I wondered um, what changed in that time, if you think from when you started to obviously before entering Parliament, what do you think the biggest changes we've seen, positive or negative, in terms of domestic violence provision?
0: It's been huge. From when the first refuges were set up in the late 70s, which were generally in in the spare room or the basement, as in in the case of of the one in in Bristol, I think it was in the ground floor of a dear friend of mine who died recently called Ellen Malos. It was women helping women saying, I will help women who need to escape from a violent man now. That changed when women campaigned for there to be, you know, funding from the state, from usually from local authorities as well as from charities, so there were more refuges. Gradually, as I came into Women's Aid, it was to help set up support projects for children who had been recognised as the secondary victims, I would argue equally victims. But the laws changed, and that was what first switched me on to Parliament. One night, and it was a night because it was an all-night sitting. I was watching the debate from the gallery of a bill that I'd had a hand in that I'd worked very hard on with Paul Boateng's staff, called the Family Law Act, and it had a great. It was about domestic violence provision mostly, but some of it was about divorce law. And I'd, I had this experience of being able to hear a politician say things that I'd briefed him on and see the change that that made. And it was like a bit of a light bulb moment, to be honest, of going, oh, right, so I can be a great campaigner, I can work for Women's Aid, but the way you get actual change, you need a politician to pass a law. Because the law that got passed that night will have provided safety for millions and millions of people, most of whom will never know that it happened because of that law in 1996. But watching it was a real lightbulb moment for me. It still didn't make me think I want to be an MP, but it did help me to see what the point was. We then get a bit further on, get into the Labour government, and it was a big political issue. The Labour Party was really interested in the sorts of things that I and my colleagues were working on. I ended up working domestic violence perpetrator work, which was relatively new and, and and not that well advanced in the sort of the 90s. But by the time we get to the noughties, it's developing. And that was really interesting frontline feminism work for me. It was just actually working with violent men to try and get them to stop being abusive physically, mentally and sexually. That found it fascinating, compelling and sometimes a bit scary, but also so important because most women, they didn't want to leave their partner. They wanted the violence to stop. And that's what they were mostly saying to us was, okay, we're glad that refugees exist, but really what we want is for the violence to stop. There's been numerous laws since then. The Sexual Offences Act 2003 was a big deal because that helped make it clear that consent had to be freely given to sex. Sounds really obvious, but one of the justifications that men in marriage had been able to use successfully in law, sometimes still are, there was no law before that saying that consent has to be freely given, and women who were married were deemed to have given consent. And so rape in marriage was almost impossible to prosecute and yet most of the women that I'd been in contact with had that experience and certainly most of the men that I subsequently worked with had conceptualized marriage as a place in which sex was available on demand and I was able in 2003 almost to say to them well no you're wrong it's not and that's that's a huge change there's been any number of changes since then Um, sometimes I feel like we've gone backwards and sometimes I just feel like we've gone so much further forwards; it's almost unrecognisable.
1: What, what are the times, what are the things that make you think we might have gone back?
0: Andrew Tate.
1: Yeah.
0: I, mean, I hate to name him, but yeah. and I try not to name men that I think are really dangerous to women, but just saying his name carries such a lot of information and you unpack that and it's about the fact that there are so many young men in particular who think he's a role model. And that worries me hugely. And that's partly about the proliferation of... Material that when I was young you could only get by going into a news agent and asking a news agent to get it off the top shelf. Now so the fact that it's there are nice on smart the phone. Yes, smartphones yeah, smart can carry porn, and young people can it's, access porn. It's a porn. whole different thing when you're. It's a, a whole different yeah. thing. Also, porn can be made more easily. That means coercive porn can be made more easily. So some things like that have gone backwards. But I also know that so often I feel a great sense of joy and hope when I hear the way young women talk about their relationships, their hopes, their, their expectations what they think is and isn't acceptable and sometimes I think my, blimey that's great that's fantastic that you know that, you've got your boundaries sorted and they've got their sisterhood sorted, they don't necessarily call it sisterhood but they really know where their support lies and I find some of that really inspiring and the fact that sometimes when I say to young women you know, there were no, really very very few women in politics when I was young and they're bit amazed because now we have a situation where we're not at 50 50 in parliament but we're closer than ever and getting there
1: now you mentioned that watching from where you were and seeing laws in parliament made you think obviously the charity work is very important but that's where some really important decisions are made so what was the moment when you thought actually i'm going to throw my hat in the ring and i'm going to try and be a labour mp
0: somebody asked me the selection process for it was my own seat you know it's, it's bristol west it's called at the moment it will be bristol Central. And somebody said, you you might want to think about it. And then somebody else said it. And that's partly why the Ask Her to Stand campaign is such a great slogan, because I know so many women who are competent, smart, hardworking, talented, funny, political, who do not think of it until someone says, have you ever thought about it?
1: Now, as you mentioned, you were selected for your seat, Uh, you entered Parliament in 2015. Was there much that surprised you about Parliament?
0: I suppose the first thing was, I was selected in 2012, and my party had hoped to win the 2015 general election. That's not what happened, I think we all know that. I think one of the things that surprised me was just how much I loved it. Yes, it's still an institution based on some traditions that I really wish we could just ditch just the seating for a start, it's built for men with long legs. And, you know, you just sit down in a House of Commons seat in the chamber. And if I sit back, my legs dangle like a little girl. You know, it's ridiculous. So things like that, the fact that the House of Commons is so small, the fact that most of the food is like school dinners. Um And some of it's great, by the way, in case any of the chefs are listening. You know, they're, they're, they're fantastic and they work really, really Barry hard. Barry
1: always. Yep.
0: <laughs> but... It surprised me and I don't know why it surprised me that it was so similar to a boys public school because that's what it was probably modelled on and, and a Tory MP I remember speaking to about this one said you know most of us in my party came from a public school to Oxbridge to practice law and then to here and it was a seamless transition. He was very honest about it and that's just not true for so most of my women colleagues and most people in the Labour Party I think we, we have a very different route
1: and a lot of the Tory party now I think yeah exactly 19 totally
0: very yeah. different intake and I think that's been quite a shockwave for the Tory party sort of it's changed its sense of who it is
1: am I right to say 2015 you're also diagnosed with breast cancer
0: seven weeks after I got elected yeah I mean that surprised me obviously um, wasn't it wasn't a fun surprise it wasn't a great way to start the year But it was a warning and a reminder to all women uh, is, is, you know, just keep checking. When you're a candidate, you just don't think of anything except the election, especially in the last three, four months, I have genuinely no idea when the lump first appeared because by the time I saw it, it was quite big, it was sticking out. I was very, very, very lucky. But it gave me an insight to how the health service works. It gave me the courage to encourage other women to make sure they're checking their breasts, but also more generally to think about how cancer treatment can be changed by political intervention. Because I looked at the survival rates for the cancer that I had and I thought, but that means it went from less than half uh, women would survive five years before 1997 to almost everybody by the time you get to the end of the Labour government. But part of it for me, since that experience, was wanting to make sure that cancer treatment wasn't a matter of chance. That your outcomes weren't just a matter of postcode. That actually, you get good cancer early diagnosis. Prevention's really important, and treatment, and more and more cancers are then survivable, and that does take political intervention.
1: So you enter Parliament. Obviously, you have that <laughs> very difficult carried on being an have, MP. Stayed <laughs> on being MP. You have <laughs> Labour in opposition. Then, of course, you have Jeremy Corbyn becoming leader. That <laughs> happened while I was having treatment. And but I was aware, yes. Yeah. And in the midst of this, you're appointed shadow arts minister. Yeah. But it's a bit complicated, isn't I it? I can
0: barely remember it now, Katie. It happened in the blink sorry, of an eye. I,
1: but at the time, <laughs> it was confusing. important because it meant to appoint someone else. Yeah, there was a whole thing. and We don't need to dwell. Yeah, I, just, well, a, I just wonder what it's like to be given a job and then to find out it was your... On I think it
0: was a few weeks in someone said I think we need to sort this out and and it, I mean it was it was a difficult time I was yeah. in my transition coming back into parliament from being really very sick so you know it, it happened in the midst of that and it's quite difficult now looking back to separate out what happened yeah. when and I'm really delighted that since then I've been given the opportunity to serve in that department as shadow secretary of state.
1: And I suppose just looking at your parliamentary career under various leaders, I mean, I think I'm right to say you stepped down from that role eventually. I did, yes. Along with various other Along with a big group, yeah. yeah. Your constituency has one of the highest vote shares for Remain. Has that affected your politics much, or do you feel your views match your constituents? I wonder what like with that.
0: I... Remember when I was selected? People saying we're selecting you because we feel that you represent the diversity of views and experiences of Bristol West. It's a very diverse constituency. Being a woman of colour was definitely relevant, although there'd never been one before. I did my masters in Bristol part time. I'd been involved in the charity sector and campaigning. I was pro-European. You know, I voted Remain. I campaigned for Remain, and and it wasn't a surprise to me that my constituents did too because we had similar sorts of sets of values and expectations. And, you know, we we, we didn't win and that was a devastating blow for my constituents. It was also not what I wanted. But in the end, that's what happened. We're having to
1: relearn our relationship with our European neighbours. Now, under Kistama, you initially served as shadow leader of the commons. No. No, I'm wrong. There you Come are. Come at me. Uh, housing.
0: I think pretty much until I was shadow leader of the house, actually. I don't think we were meeting. It was Certainly, it was two metres apart and masks and stuff. It must be
1: very strange to get into, like, a meaty brief when you're...
0: On a it... Zoom. Yeah, exactly. Yes. I think... I visited only one
1: building site. And again, it was two metres apart and kind of weird. And then you moved to Shadow Leader of the Commons. So it certainly did. And that's during quite an interesting time yes. uh, in terms of we're talking Boris Johnson as Prime Minister... Jacob Rees-Mogg is your opposite number? Certainly was. A few feisty exchanges at the Commons Dispatch Box, am I right?
0: Yeah, we had a good time, yeah. I mean, it, 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 Jacob was not afraid to give it with both barrels to me and I was not afraid to do the same. We took each other on. In fairness to Jacob, I have to say he's been nothing but courteous to be off stage, but we sure knew how to pick each other apart politically.
1: A few points of difference. I think one was Owen Patterson's ah, scandal. Yes. yeah. Well,
0: <laughs> yes. It's interesting when you're, you're both on the House of Commons Commission, the leader of the House and the House, a shadow leader of the House, this weird institution called the House of Commons Commission. And there was an inquiry into Owen Paterson by the Standards Commissioner, then by the Standards Committee. Long story short, Jacob's job was to stand up and move a motion, suspending Owen for the required number of days. My job was stand up, not be party political, agree with Jacob, sit down, everybody goes home. Now, that's not what happened. <laughs> so not what happened. And, of course... The Tory party effectively then took apart a standards motion and effectively tried to take down the entire system of standards by undermining the motion that Jacob had just proposed, which is weird on many levels, but troubling because it was the governing party saying the system of standards for MPs, we don't like it and we're going to not just undo it, we're going to undo it retrospectively for our colleague. Now, that I found that appalling, but it is of no surprise to me that that really was the beginning of the end of Boris Johnson because, of course, he'd been involved in plotting that. It didn't work. Despite the fact they they technically won the vote, they didn't win the argument, and by the next day, Owen Paterson was gone. And eventually, of course, Boris Johnson was undone by standards, and he clearly thought he was above them too, because he fought the Standards Committee himself, and then resigned so he didn't have to face it. So that Owen Paterson to Boris Johnson trajectory, it was a fascinating time to be involved in as shadow leader of the House, but also the role involves what happens on the floor of the House of Commons, how... Government business gets translated into parliamentary debate, gets translated back into real life. I found that really interesting and is a really good preparation for, I hope, going into government.
1: And there was also a clash over, I think, a physical queue to vote.
0: Oh, goodness. Um, The queue to vote, the mob conga. But I wondered on that. I mean,
1: (laughs) do you think Parliament has further to go in terms of being more accessible or more adjusting to remote working, remote voting and things like that?
0: I mean, that's tricky because... It would be very easy just to say, yes, everyone should be able to remote work, and we did it in in COVID. It wasn't great for Parliament to be working remotely. In fact, I would go so far as to say it was not good at all. I'm glad it was possible because it meant that people who were, you know, either having to convalesce or or isolate because they were in a household where there was COVID could still represent their constituents, but it wasn't great. And I personally think that you do need the in-person work we did develop I mean the House of Commons staff were incredible what they did to make sure we could keep running was brilliant but you know things like the way we had to queue to vote was ridiculous when we already had a method of voting electronically which had been developed for the first few weeks so that was just ridiculous and it wasted hours of everybody's time it was infuriating for the staff as well you know so that was ridiculous but remote working accessibility yes I think the the Palace of Westminster as a whole I mean obviously we probably a lot of your listeners know that it's ripe for what's called restoration and renewal it belongs to the people it belongs to the people of this country big ben and you know the elizabeth tower one of the most popular tourist sites but also there's something really profoundly democratic about the fact that it belongs to the people and the people can walk in and see us at work and that isn't Everybody, because the whole place is not accessible. And I'm talking not just about wheelchair accessible, although it's definitely not. It's, it's excruciating when you have a constituent up in a wheelchair. Um, it's, it's inaccessibility to a range of disabilities is, is I think, embarrassing. Um, it doesn't feel like to some people it's a place that welcomes them. I happen to love it as an institution. I also love it as a building. And because I love it as a building and a democratic institution, I want it to be preserved but enhanced for future generations. That's going to be tricky.
1: And now want to your current brief. We mentioned earlier that this is um, a brief, obviously, that matches your interests. In many ways, we don't want to be complacent. We're looking at the polls and um, there's a good chance of a Labour government. So you could be culture secretary. It's often described as the Ministry of Fun. do you think that's a fair description when it comes to the briefs that you're currently shadowing? I mean it's a lot
0: of hard work and there's a lot of politics and it's media and sport as well as culture so there is a vast array of people that you need to be able to be in touch with and build working relationships with but I do think that pretty much everything that people find fun is somewhere in that department so most people don't find going to a hospital fund, but it's necessary. And so, of course, we have to have a Department of Health. But if you talk about what people do to enjoy themselves, whether it's go to the cinema, play a game of football on a Sunday morning, it's in that department. So I think that's that's a real honour because you are... Secretary of State, if if we are in government, for everything that people enjoy themselves with, that gives them joy, that gives them meaning, that helps them to relax, that helps them stay fit and healthy. That's just wonderful. And the fact that it's the ministry of things that give people joy is a great pleasure.
1: I suppose one area you're in charge of is press regulation. Now... There's been, I think it's something that the spectator often looks at press regulation, fighting very much for press freedom. Levison too, is that something a Labour government would pursue?
0: We want a free press. We want a press that is free and fearless to scrutinise us. And I think that's really important part of a functioning democracy. You have to have a press that's free. And that does mean a press that's got a range of different angles, range of different routes it goes down, but it's not allowed to break the law. So you know, Leveson, that inquiry followed the the phone hacking scandal. Phone hacking is is criminal. People went to prison. It's bad, but the vast majority of journalists and uh, newspapers, broadcasters, do a fantastic job. I think of shining a light on what we do in if it's news and current affairs or entertaining us or informing us. That's the bulk of journalism that I see. Do we always agree on everything? Well, of course not. But that, again, is part of a functioning democracy and I think it's really important. Regulation, there has to be regulation. But I think the most important principle that we have in a democracy is free press, to scrutinise what's going on. That's not just scrutinising politicians, but other people of power as well. So the regulation's got to be appropriate to allow you guys to do what you need to do.
1: I think there was a tweet surfacing a while ago, which was um, from 2012 by yourself. When I, oh, before I was even a, <laughs> a candidate, t- I exactly, think. which is bring down the House of Murdoch. I just wondered, where do you stand now? Well, I mean, you know, <laughs> what it was about.
0: serious point. It was about the campaign to get rid of Page Three. Which was an objectionable piece of entertainment that objectified women and reduced us to our breasts, and I found that deeply um, problematic, as did many women. And at the time, it felt like the only way to uh, to to object to it was to come out with quite polemic statements like that. Now, I think we can all see the House of Murdoch has survived doing fine, despite my words, but also they have got rid of page three. It has three. been a change, exactly, it has been yeah. a change.
1: So, you know, we're done. No, that makes sense. Yeah. Now, moving on to culture wars, <laughs> next one. Ah. <week>. Um, <laughs> I mean, you said in public that you're fighting for culture, not culture wars. I am. Do you feel that perhaps the other side have become too much focused on that? Or perhaps it's a media obsession with culture wars. I don't know how, how you see it. Do you feel like it comes up a lot, or...? I do think the other side are fighting
0: culture wars more often than they're fighting for culture. Yes, I think that they're particularly good at picking those culture wars. I think a good example of this is Picking Fights with the BBC, which is a widely respected institution here and abroad, one of the best forms of soft power we have. The biggest commissioner of the creative industries that we have in this country is the BBC. So it's a great provider of joy and jobs. Even now, with an age of internet news and, and digital Productions. I love the podcast world, but people will also, and I listen to podcasts, but I also still will go to the BBC for those key set piece moments, whether it is the, the funeral of the uh, late queen um, or the coronation of the current king. You know, people will typically turn to the BBC and yet the Tories are often picking fights with them over things that just don't stack up. And I don't think that's helpful. I don't think it's helpful for a culture secretary, as a recent one has done, to write to the directors of museums and tell them how to run their museums. I really don't. I don't think it's appropriate for them to tell them they need to present a more balanced view of slavery, which was the subject. There isn't really such a thing as, on the one hand, slavery was bad, but on the one hand, it wasn't that bad. That's not really how slavery worked. So, you know, I think that's an example of a culture war that is just shameful. But also, why? What was the point of that? In my view, the point of it is if you look at the effect it was just to try and bully or intimidate people who receive public money, quite rightly, to conserve our history, to help explain and interpret our history, into interpreting it in a way to suit the current government of the day. That is not okay. That's a culture war. For me, that's an example of privileging culture wars over culture. And I want to be the opposite sort.
1: Now, I only had one specific culture question, I'm I'm asking you because obviously we talked about your love of classical music, Mm -hmm. your background, also your brief. There has been a debate about whether Real Britannia should be performed on the last night of the proms. And we've recently had um, a very acclaimed say come out and say that it made them feel uncomfortable. I wonder, do you have a view on it? It's not my favourite bit of music. Yeah. And the proms is a fantastic
0: institution. It's the world's greatest music festival. Festival. And I think what they've done, what the proms organisers have done, is it's just fantastic how they've diversified the programming. You know, we have Motown now. We had Northern Soul night. We have all sorts of things. We've got proms coming from outside London, and you know, it's it's been a, such a transition uh, from very traditional programming. Certainly, when I was performing in the proms as part of um, a youth orchestra years and years ago, it was very traditional programming. Great work, but nothing like what we see. So I think it's a decision for the people who run the proms. And again, like I said, it shouldn't be politicians who tell people how to run cultural events. I think there, for a lot of people, that feels like a very sort of British moment, which I think has to be respected as well. But for a lot of people, it will feel, as Jacob Kali Mason said, you know, it will feel alienating. And As I want the proms, I want culture to be accessible to everyone. I think it's a good debate for us to
1: be having. Now, I've got three final questions, but they're quite quick, I promise. This is your taste test, Go. Oh. which is Beethoven or Britney. Well, Beethoven, but also
0: Br- Britney is, is there. She, she's in my life, Britney. Um, and partly because the free Britney thing was horrifying and, and gripping. But oh, yeah. yeah, there are Britney songs on playlists of mine. But
1: Beethoven, I'm... F- Beethoven first, but Britney still gets on the playlist.
0: Tennis or football? Uh tennis, well, I think I prefer I went to see the Lionesses up in Sunderland and that was really, really exciting. I also get to kick around got to kick around the football. Because of my nephews, I had to go and see quite a lot of young football when I was younger. Tennis hasn't been a big part of my life, so that's a long
1: answer. Probably football. Ballet or opera.
0: Oh no, this is too hard. <laughs> Uh, but, ooh, I blunt. can't say that uh,
1: Then I'm going to go with opera But it's a very, very narrow close. margin It's close And finally, Kafka or Kardashian
0: Kaf- mm. Kafka
1: Okay, we got there In your seat you have a potentially a threat from the Greens. What is your message to your voters when it comes to that? Are you worried about it, or are you quite confident in Labour?
0: Most of the people I talk to in Bristol Central want change. They want to see a change of government. The only way you get a change of government is you have more Labour MPs than all the others put together. And if you want to change of government, if you want a culture secretary, Secretary of State for Culture, Media and Sports, if you want a champion for local Bristol people, which I've always been, and then I would still say I'm that person. I've had the great privilege of representing the good people of Bristol West so far, people of Bristol Central slightly smaller, I'm looking forward to, I hope, securing their trust and then if Kia wants me to, to being actual Secretary of State for culture, media and sport under a Labour government.
1: And that leads us to our final question which when we ask everyone which is what is the worst advice you've ever been given? I'm sure you've got plenty to pick
0: from. Uh, shoes.
1: Uh, <laughs> someone once told me they thought
0: I'd suit platforms and uh, yeah I know and they were very big. I did actually go and buy a pair of platform heels and they were about, that's about six inches at the back and about four inches at the front and they had little bricks sort of marked on them to make them look like a wall. I could not walk in them. I wore them out the shop and I think I got as far as the sort of maybe the far end of the shopping centre before I realised that I was never going to be able to walk in them and that I was too humiliated to take them back. So I just took them off <laughs> and walked home in my socks. Um, but having said that, I've had some good advice on shoes as well. Um, shoes do occupy quite a
1: bit of my brain. What's the best advice you've had on shoes? Sorry, yeah. I know you probably have to leave. <laughs> uh, uh,
0: if you invest in a decent pair of shoes, they will last if you take care of them and you remember to take them to the cobbler.
1: Yeah, you know, my parents are always like buckles, block heel, good advice. Anyway, thank you, thank thank you for joining today. Thank you for having me on, Katie. It's been a pleasure.